Clear. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really no good background noise That's yeah right. this That's is right. this is the best seat in the house That's right. we got sky riders now we got sky riders we got now. sky riders they, now they, they, <laughs> does that say UCAP? i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're in sight clear west turkey special ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and delta Live here at Sun and Fun 2011. Every year at Sun and Fun, we have been doing for the last five years. We have been doing aviation podcasts. It's been five years. It's been five years. We've been doing aviation podcasts here on Sun and Fun Radio. It seemed like only a half a decade ago. You know, you're right. It did. And with today, we bring you the second installment of the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast. And for the next hour and a half, I believe it is, we turn control, this is really scary, we turn control of the radio station over to Jack Hodgson, Jeb Burnside, Dave Higdon, and a guest who I will introduce, you guys will introduce in a couple minutes. We, we, we will do that, we will do that. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to present you the Voices in Your Head, the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. And welcome, everyone, to episode 231 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Recording uh, this episode on Sunday morning, April 3rd, 2011. And as David mentioned, we are live on location from the grounds of the 2011 Sun and Fun Fly-In. I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm here with my good friends and cohorts, 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 partners in crime. Uh, Jeb Burnside is here and Dave Higdon is here. And we've got a few special guests that are going to be joining us we throughout do. the morning. So, uh, But uh, let's chat with you guys just a little bit here. So uh, it's been quite a week. It's been quite a week. <laughs> I, I, you know, I went home earlier, back, or, you know, Tuesday night, I guess it was. Did I miss anything? No, time? no, no. It was just, you know, quiet. And, oh, okay. Uh, okay. The airplanes and, you know, yeah. it rained a little, but no. Oh, okay. Deal. Good, yeah, good. Right, yeah. Was so, there any wind or anything? Yeah, a little bit, you know, but, you know, just that. In, in, all, in all seriousness, the, uh, um, and we'll talk about this some more in a, in a few moments, the recovery, the, uh, from what I understood, you know, of, of everything on Thursday and coming back in here yesterday morning, um, I, I really, you know, other than, Certain areas of the grounds, uh, you really can't tell um, that anything major happened. Here. It really was remarkable, and, yeah. and we're going to talk to our special guest about this in just a second. But I, I just wanted to say myself, uh, you know, and, and we've been to a lot of fly-ins over the years that have had awkward years with rain and, and you know various events, and they've always done a terrific job at compensating and cleaning up and whatnot. But this was just amazing, I, and it was like. From one day to the next. I mean, we were in this incredible situation with wreckage here and there and, and water on the ground. And, and it was just, it was nuts on Thursday. And then we all came in here on Friday morning. And if you didn't know where to look, you might not have known that something had happened. All right. It was pretty astounding. Um, and on that subject, let me introduce our special guest here. Uh, also sitting with us here on the deck at Sun and Fun Radio is the president, let's see if I've got this right, the president and chairman of the Sun and Fun Fly-In, John Burton's here. Hi, John. Good morning. Good morning, Jack. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So it, as I alluded, it, it has been quite a roller coaster ride this week. It has been an incredible series of, uh, I guess the best way to describe it would be triumph and, and tragedy. Uh, the tragedy being the events uh, that happened on Thursday and the uh, cleanup effort, the massive cleanup effort that began almost immediately afterwards, 
the triumph being, uh, I think, really the, the effort, the coordinated and combined effort of all of our volunteers that, that was nothing short of remarkable. And it, it almost overshadows all of the other things that took place previously, including the ribbon cutting for the Central Florida Aerospace Academy and some of the things that happened after, such as the arrival of the F-22 Raptor, the United States Navy Blue Angels, and, and a number of ac other activities. So it, it's really, the focus has really right, been on right. the weather and, and weather-related incidents. How much sleep did you miss Thursday night? All of it? Uh, I did get a couple of hours sleep. Uh, I, I don't know how much, and I, do, I don't know what time I got home. I know it was pretty late, and I know I had to get back pretty early. Yeah. But, um, Something, if we just get this out of the way, because I know a lot of people are curious, what are the latest updated numbers about air, numbers of aircraft damaged and people injured and things like that? I know from the number of people that we treated here at the Southern Fund Medical Hospitality Center, there were 15 people that were brought over. Seven of them were subsequently transported to Lakeland Regional Medical Center. Uh, the most serious injury uh, was one of our uh, female guards, uh, some of our paid security that was in a guard shack that was tossed into a ditch, and she had a head injury. Uh, I don't think that it is uh, life-threatening. I think that was the most serious. We also had someone who had either a broken or displaced hip. Uh, there was a broken arm. But overall, uh, while we are incredibly sad about the, the loss of property, we are eternally grateful that there was not the loss of life that accompanied it. Agreed. And Agreed. the final count on airplanes damaged? I've heard numbers as high as 69 uh, that were either damaged or destroyed. Uh, I don't have a final count on that. I know the initial estimates were between 40 and 50. That number was higher after they got to the outlying areas uh, in rotorcraft, in GA parking, in uh, Paradise City, and then in our aircraft camping uh, on the west side. So... Uh, uh, I don't have a number, but I've heard a number that high. Well, we came cruising through a little of the property Thursday evening late. After the thing had been shut down for a while, uh, the recovery was well underway. Uh, you could see crews working on different spots on the field. Come back out here about 7.30 the next morning, and it was you know, remarkably close to normal, like nothing had happened. I mean, you, you could see bits and pieces. Uh, poor Phil Lockwood out there was still uh, pulling apart the, the tangled mess of his, some of his airplanes in uh, a couple other places. But people were coming in. The sun was out. Flying went on. Uh, just a hell of a job. You, you, your crew, the volunteers, the, the first responders, uh, just a class A effort. There were, there were a number of things that had to be dealt with immediately. Uh, but besides the obvious, uh, one of the first things was our emergency response team had to clear the area because there were some hazardous material issues with spilled fuel and, and other things that, that I'll get into in a minute. But as the police were securing the area, uh, there were people who didn't understand why they had to, to clear out. I mean, there, there were some issues, and not only from the cleanup standpoint, but from the hazmat issues. But the first issue we had to deal with was that the police were saying, Sun and Fun is closed. And what happened was people thought that we were done. And we even heard reports from outside of Lakeland that were saying, wow, you get, I mean, they saw photos with the, with the Internet, with, with uh, uh, droids, as, as Dave Shellpetter was talking about before. There's immediate uh, uplinks to 
uh, or access to photos of the damage that was here, and it was truly significant. And when you looked at that, you couldn't help but think, holy cow, what, what are they going to do? So the first thing we had to do was we made the decision internally, and then we made it everybody else aware of it internally that we were, we were planning on opening at 8 a.m. Friday morning. And so we told the police, look, we understand you've got to move people out of the core area, but when you tell them to move, we are closed for the day. Yeah. We're not closed. We're Add closed those three for the words. day. And it was hugely important. And then word pretty much spread like wildfire that Burton had this idiotic idea that we were going to open up at 8 o'clock the next day. <laughs> and then people rallied around that right. like I have never seen before. And everybody, individually and collectively, had as their goal 8 a.m. on Friday morning. And that's all, any, that's all everybody was thinking about was not could we do it, but if we were going to hit the 8 o'clock mark. And then once we made it clear that we're not, th- this ain't over, we're going to finish what we started on Tuesday, uh, I think that became almost a, uh, a rallying cry and a challenge to everybody. And I can't think of a better team, uh, not only of professionals, but of our, our volunteers uh, to, to accomplish that goal. And by God, we did it. John, one of the uh, looking forward, uh, moving forward, um, what kind of lessons have you all been able to identify and learn at this stage of, of your post-mortem investigations and, and, and thinking? And what might you be changing for next year in the out years? I'll answer that first by saying that the, the lessons learned are a bigger picture lesson because we, we've talked individually on a debrief about what we could have done or should have done better. But the, the bigger picture is, is how remarkable the, the human spirit is. And when you have a common purpose and a common passion and a common focus, you can really accomplish amazing things. And what we accomplished, a lot of people thought was going to be impossible. Uh, but I think when, when you have committed people and you have a united effort, you can do just about anything. And, and, and that, I mean, in, in answer to your question, that's what I learned. Uh, and I learned that that the resiliency of the human spirit <laughs> is truly amazing. When you've been through an event like that, and and you you guys were here, I mean, w- what did you think when when you saw our outdoor aircraft manufacturers area in a shambles? Uh, did you think we were going to open at eight o'clock on Friday morning? When. The storm peaked as it passed through here. Jack and I were here at the radio station. And visibility went beyond the porch to zero. And there for a couple of minutes, she kind of wondered whether there'd be anything out there to see when the rain stopped. Uh, and, yeah, you, you could see some of the damage, uh, airplane over here on its nose and all that. But when you look around, the, the photos isolate the bad stuff. But when you looked at the scene overall, uh, it was r- really kind of amazing how well so many of these tents and structures, uh, I mean, open things like uh, EAA's uh, member tent there, uh, several of the others, uh, those big aluminum beam things, they held up. Uh, they held up. It was far, it, it could have been so much worse. And in a way, I kind of think we have the slower attendance early in the week. To credit for that, you know, in, in a in a very weird way, you're absolutely right. The the morning of the tornado, I was bemoaning the fact that we had very few airplanes here, and now in hindsight, 
imagine if we would have had great weather the weekend before and on Monday and Tuesday, and the general aircraft or the home-built uh, parking areas were maybe not full, but more aircraft than there were, there, in, in my opinion, there would have been substantially more damage out there than there was in the outdoor aircraft manufacturers. And, and it would have been far more difficult to get the crowd under undercover if it had been a normal day's crowd. Uh, and the announcement started going around. Actually, I don't think you could have cut it much closer. Uh, and, you know, that's not in your all's control. When it, when it turns purple, it turns purple in its own time. But uh, we dodged a much bigger bullet than we, than yeah, we took. I, I think it's a good point. Yeah, there's, a, there's no question. There's a lot of blessings to be counted, and a lot of people, everyone, can be very proud of the way everyone responded to the whole thing. Um, but let's move on. So let's say, talk there's about still it. stuff going That's on right. today. That's What's right. next? John, tell us, uh, tell us uh, from your perspective, what have been the more traditional highlights of the week? Uh, I think starting the event off on Tuesday morning with the ribbon cutting for the Central Florida Aerospace Academy really captured uh, not only the mission but the spirit of Sun and Fun for the past 37 years. A lot of people don't understand that Sun and Fun is a year-round educational organization that conducts an annual fly-in as our primary fundraiser. And, in fact, about 95% of our annual operating budget comes as a result of this event. But we funnel that money into our year-round educational programs, including support for the Florida Air Museum, which is where we have all of our educational programs uh, uh, originating. But having a uh, benefactor who donated last year, you may recall, we actually did the, the, the groundbreaking, uh, and then we didn't even move any dirt until the middle of August. So that building at our main gate really has come about within the last seven months. Oh, wow. That's great. So yeah. uh, we're looking at a total of uh, 500 high school career academy kids when it's at full capacity. It's a 58,000-square-foot uh, three-story facility. It is spectacular from top to bottom. I hope if you haven't had a chance to go through it, you do get a chance because it is aviation-oriented. Uh, aviation uh, it, it has its basic core curriculum. Uh, the focus is on uh, STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, and math. But there is an avionics maintenance and repair uh, module within the curriculum. And within the next two to three years, we hope to be adding uh, airframe and power plant mechanic as well as air traffic control modules to it as well. So when the kids graduate from high school, they will have an opportunity to uh, get into a, maybe not a high-tech, high-wage job, but very, very good employment and with an aviation emphasis. So are the kids there from um, all, all years? I mean, will there be a graduating class this year? There will not be a graduating class this year. This is our second full year of operation. Uh -huh. They started with the sophomore year. Uh, we're partners with Kathleen High School, which is located nearby. So freshman year, the kids went through Kathleen. Sure. They came in here. Our first class was the, a class of sophomores only. When the sophomores became juniors, we backfilled the sophomore years. Mm -hmm. So we went from about 75 kids our first year to about So the oldest class there are juniors now? Yes, sir. So... 12 will be the first graduating class. Correct. Yeah. Okay, great. And will that be the home to the Sun and Fun forums uh, from here on out? Yes, it will. That's a great facility for well, it. Not only that, but i, I, I got to tell you, I, and, and I'm, I'm patting Sun and Fun on the back on this one, I think right now Sun and Fun is in the leadership position in terms of our educational activities during an event because I don't think you're, you're going to find anything anywhere else that has the technological support that we have through the Central Florida Aerospace Academy. And as Bob Curtis, uh, our scheduling chairperson, is, is wont to say, and it's air-conditioned. <laughs> and, and, and a little more noise-resistant. Yeah, you, you don't hear the speaker doing the lectures. The next tent over. 
Well, one thing I noticed in, in the days and weeks leading up to the show this year, uh, the FAA, of all people, uh, was just bl blitzing uh, its email list, its email subscribers, with announcements of, of forums and fast team meetings and, and uh, stand downs and all this kind of thing, not just here at, at Lakeland, uh, but also in the Tampa area. Um, and I've just never seen that from the FAA before. It's, it's, uh, it's, I think, you know, probably some handshaking going on between you folks and them. But uh, uh, just one more example of all the forum opportunities that are available here. Absolutely. Jeb, you, you touched on something, and I, and I appreciate you picking it up. Uh, we have uh, probably the only year-round FAA facility on our campus that we're trying to promote uh, along with all of our activities because the, the FAA National Resource Center and Production Studios uh, not only has their weekend programming on aviation safety, but they have uh, full, they're staffed up Monday through Friday as well as Saturday and Sunday. So, like us, uh, one of their favorite sayings is "Thank God it's Friday." Only two more work days till Monday. That's right. That's right. But uh, we have a tremendous partner in the FAA, and I have to give kudos to Doug Murphy, the the administrator from the Southern Region who has been a huge friend and partner to Sun and Fun and has really led the initiative of uh, not only co-promoting activities but partnering with Central Florida Aerospace Academy, with Florida Air Museum educational activities, and then we're partnering with some of the uh, educational activities coming out from the FAA building. Yeah, it's all good. What other changes to the grounds and the facilities since last year? Uh, a lot of changes down at Ultralight, it seems. We have been trying to, as budget allows, uh, make improvements wherever we can. A lot of it isn't as noticeable because we've been trying to do some grading and, and looking out front here, I think we've got a little bit more grading to do before uh, opening day of next year. But there are areas within the uh, home-built parking area. Uh, Paradise City, I think next year we'll be seeing a, a facelift there. Yeah, I shouldn't call it the ultralight area really anymore. It's We're really trying to go beyond that, right? A absolutely. Light, uh, Ashley Sport and Light Sport Aircraft uh, will be the focus of Paradise City as we're moving forward. Uh, we're working with Dan Johnson uh, in our uh, LSA Mall here in the Southeastern Exhibit, so we've been having an ongoing dialogue with what are we going to do next year and the year after that. So areas, areas there. Uh, uh, Bill Myers and his guys down at uh, uh, Choppertown uh, have uh, put in a lot of improvements uh, as a matter of fact, I was even surprised to learn that they have an irrigation system down there for watering, which, <laughs> I don't know, it sounds like a Radar O'Reilly type of uh, acquisition, oh, yeah, military okay. acquisition yeah. thing. They smuggled in the parts, and yeah, exactly, that, sure. Just yeah. sign here. Sir. Yeah. Um, we're going to let you go pretty soon here, but any, any other highlights stand out from the week? The Blues were kind of fun. I, I think uh, there, were, there were a couple of things that we had, and I don't know if you guys got a chance to see any of this. I think Sun and Fun Radio carried most of our evening or programs live. Uh, but there were uh, uh, the Tuesday night evening program with Hoot Gibson, who had lined up a, a stellar uh, panel of uh, naval aviators who talked about 100 years of naval aviation. On Wednesday night, we had uh, two, brigadier, two brigadier generals who happened to be married to each other, who both happened to be medical doctors, one of whom is also a Ph.D. They were both in Desert Storm. They did the 20th anniversary commemoration of Desert Storm, and their names are Brigadier General Corey Cornum and Rhonda Cornum. And if the Rhonda Cornum sounds familiar, she was the female POW uh, during Desert Storm. Ah. So it was a tremendous perspective on a 20th anniversary program. 
Uh, last night, John Peterson gave an awesome program, which I think he debuted, a portion of which at AOPA Expo. On uh, he, He's a futurist, and I had no idea what the heck futurist meant, but John looks at uh, converging trends and is able to say, look, this is how it looks like things are happening. And I thought, oh, boy, what a bunch of hooey until I saw his background. Uh, he has held high-level positions at the White House, in the Department of Defense, at the Pentagon, and I'm thinking, this is a guy that we may want to pay a little bit of attention to. So uh, the Navy Blue Angels, uh, the Raptor, uh, if you haven't seen that thing fly, holy cow. I mean, yeah. Even, yeah. even for guys like you who have seen just about everything, that's a pretty impressive airplane. Well, we were, really we were fortunate yesterday. Um, we were over in the campgrounds when the Blues were performing, and um, they went right over us. You know, boom, 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 boom. Very different and, perspective. Uh, yeah. I decided that you know, based on you know whatever karma I accumulate here over the over the next few years, uh, when I die, I want to come back as a Blue Angel pilot. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. <laughs> yeah. Either that. Plus, one of my highlights is I was watching Patty Wax that fly in the in the air show. So I'm hoping that I can see that. There you go. There you go. Finally, finally, I know you folks are, although you're deeply involved in making sure this one, this year works out right, but I know you always look ahead and are thinking ahead. Uh, is there anything you can maybe uh, tease us with about uh, what 2012 might bring? Well, I, I know that this was the 100th year of naval aviation. Next year, coincidentally, is the 100th year of Marine Corps aviation. And I think a lot of folks are not familiar with the Marine Expeditionary Unit so we're going to try and get some Ospreys, perhaps a Harrier, Cobra, you know, just the support, uh, and try to do a large-scale uh, effort with the Marines. Uh, there's a couple of other aerospace anniversaries that we're trying to work out, but I think that's going to be one of the things that we're working on. So uh, very exciting. I am going to rename a weather chairperson for next year, so if any, <laughs> if any of you guys are interested in assuming that that's, position. That's not a job I want, John. Yeah, really Thanks for, for considering us. But hey, it's only up from here. <laughs> this is comes like, with yeah. a different picture on the all-access pass, maybe. Thank you, John. John Burton, the president and chairman of the Sun and Fun Flying. We appreciate you taking a few minutes to visit us here in the virtual hangar. Jack, and, uh, Jeb, David, always great to be here. Thank you for all you do, not only on behalf of Sun and Fun, but on behalf of aviation, you guys do a great job. Thank we you. really appreciate it. Congratulations. So, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful morning here on the grounds. If you're not uh, here, if you're listening on the stream and you're nearby, you really ought to think about jumping in your car and come on over here because there's still a whole day, another air show. Uh, it's beautiful weather. The airplanes are flying. And uh, it's just a, a, a beautiful morning to be, be hanging out around airplanes. We have another guest here in the uh, virtual hangar. Tell us who you are. Oh, Peggy Chabrian with Women in Aviation International. Good, good morning, Peggy. How are you doing? Good morning. Fine. Thank you. So what are you, what are you folks up to this morning? Well, uh, we're here exhibiting in one of the exhibit uh, hangars, uh, Hangar A. Mm-hmm. But we also have, this is, uh, we've been having a show every day this week at Sun and Fun Radio yep. called Women Shine at Sun and Fun. And we have with us this morning one of our, our members, and certainly not a stranger here to the folks at Sun and Fun, Patty Wagstaff. Good morning. Hi, Patty. Welcome. Hi, thanks. First time you, that you've been with us here on the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast. We appreciate oh, that. Oh, thank uh, you. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Yep. It's a, uh, a one of our uh, regulars is uh, a, some, uh, one of your running buddies, James Winbrandt. Is, oh, James uh, is a good friend of mine and yep. a neighbor up in St. Augustine. Yep. Part of the year. Us, he was telling us in an episode earlier this week about your adventure down in Central America he recently. He flew down with me. Uh, we had an air show. I had an air show in El Salvador in uh, January. And uh, at Ilopango Airport, it was a fantastic event. It was really great. It was their 17th year as well. And um, I asked James to fly down with me because he has a Mooney, 
Uh, he could carry our stuff and um, our, our supplies and things like that. And, um, and he speaks fluent Spanish and had flown extensively down in Central America. So it worked out great. We had a great time. And, uh, you know, there, there were a couple of incidences that were interesting. I don't know if he told you about our military tribunal. In, uh, he mentioned there were, there were some trying, <laughs> there were some, interesting times. We had a couple of mini meltdowns, and I think we fared quite well. Yeah. <laughs> Although he did tell us a funny story. Uh, talked about how, how sometimes uh, the officials would be trying to give you a hard time, as they might give any generic you know, tourist visitors who come into right. town, until they heard, oh, this is Patty Wagstaff. Oh, Patty Wagstaff. Oh, oh there fine. was some no of that. Yeah. yeah, okay, you're fine. Not, <laughs> not a problem at all. Yeah, some of the places. Yeah. So It was a great trip, flying across Guatemala, down the coast, the entire country of Guatemala. And El Salvador is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and then several of us went to Nicaragua afterwards. And yeah. What else have you been up to? Uh, how goes the firefighting thing? It, really good. I, um, I'm flying in California, flying in OV-10, and uh, flying as an air attack pilot. And uh, I really enjoy it and hoping to move into tankers in a couple of years, as seniority permits, and uh, mm-hmm. drop retardant on fires and help the firefighters on the ground. So I'm really happy to be in that culture, and I'm really impressed with the work that they do. Tell us a little bit about that flying experience. How's that the same or different from, you know, how we fly and how you fly normally, you know? It's, it's um, for me, it's perfectly suited because tanker flying is, um, you know, it's, it's quite, yeah, it re- requires a lot of skill to fly down low, um, you know, fly a big airplane, um, 100 feet above the ground, into canyons, you know, through, you know, fires, um, it's, uh, not through, but next to fires, dropping retardant, it's very... Um, it's a specific skill, very, all VFR, you know, a lot of seat-of-the-pants-type um, flying. So for me, it was a perfect, you know, match um, to get into that world. Just one quick question. Uh, it strikes me as, as, as relevant. How much straight and level flying do you actually do? Well, when I'm, fire, you know, firefighting flying, air attack flying, I'm, it's all straight and level. Um, not allowed to do anything else anyway. Oh, shucks. I know. Even though the airplane, the OV-10 is very capable. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in flying cross-country, it's mostly yeah. occasionally I'll throw a roll in. But, you know, you can't fly in vertical baggage and the GPS cuts out. Well, so. the, OV, the OV-10 ops, is that uh, spotting or is that uh, yeah, dropping retardant? It's, um, no, it's the, they don't drop retardant. I fly with a, um, it's called an air tactical group supervisor okay. in the back seat. Very experienced firefighter who's trained for this. We set up a fire traffic area. Um, and we direct the tankers in, okay. and it's call, all in assistance. You call them in on target, things We like call that. them in on target and give them clearance to drop and tell them where to drop, that type of thing. So well, it's kind of like a forward air controller's job. Very child. much like yeah. a forward air controller. In fact, I got a great gift this week. A um, Vietnam veteran came up and gave me a hat from his squadron. He was a FAC or a forward air controller in Vietnam. I don't know his name because he just gave me the hat and left, and uh, it had the squadron, said Da Nang on it, and on the back it had my name embroidered. And it was an OV-10 squadron. And like, that was one of the neatest yeah. things I've ever been yeah. given. So if he's listening, thanks. Has the experience all been very routine so far? Have there been any, adv- any adventures, any incidents? It, every flight is different. And, you know, the first day I started the job, I had, we had a fire. Um, I'd been to school, been to training, of course, you know, in the plane and in firefighting. So um, I, you know, knew what to expect. But... None, none of it's routine. Every fire is different, um, much like air show work. So it's really fun. It's rewarding. It's exciting. You don't know if you're going to go up there and be up there five hours or five minutes. You know, you can take off and get canceled and turn around right away because they put the fire out in the ground. Um, or you can get up there and you're up there for loitering for five hours over a fire. Um, so you have to be prepared for anything. You always carry an overnight bag, even though you usually go home at night. Um, but... It's, uh, it's extremely rewarding and fun. Um, it's a great group of pilots. It's a very small group, 
um, with the group I work with, and uh, they're all very, very skilled and you know very experienced. So I'm really lucky to be I, in the culture. I know, you're, I know you're on a tight schedule. If you can just give us a couple more minutes here, um, mm-hmm. tell us. Let's kind of go back a little bit for you. I'm sure it's only a couple of years because you're not that not old like Dave, all right? But uh, how not did you get that old? Yeah, yeah, I know exactly. That's what we say all the time too. Uh, Tell us about your earliest days of flying. How did you get started? Why, why, what attracted you? Well, it's really cool because there's a DC-7 here, that uh, the Eastern Airlines DC-7 out of Opelika that, uh, that's on display, and you can go over and look inside it and everything. And, and uh, I've been able to, uh, to go inside there and look around, and that's what really got me interested in aviation was my dad would let me fly with him when I was a kid and let me fl- actually sit in the left seat and fly with passengers in the back. And, um, you know, I've told that story a few times, and people sort of don't believe it, but it's, you know, things were a little bit different then, and uh, so since I was, you know, I'd always seen my dad with airplanes. My mom used to take me to the airport to watch airplanes take off in San Francisco, and um, so I'd always been around it, and I loved it, and I loved to help my dad update his jets and uh, help him with this check ride. So I just always had a big interest in aviation. I had posters on my wall, and um, but I didn't learn to fly till I moved to Alaska. I was in my 20s and didn't have the opportunity before then, and um, so when I started to fly, it, it, in a way, it, I had to learn like everybody else, but in a way it came natural. I felt really at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was probably pretty familiar to you, yeah. Yeah. What, what airport did you do your primary training out of? Uh, Lake Hood Seaplane Base. Uh-huh. <laughs> I started, and then uh, Dillingham, Alaska, what small aircraft, town. What aircraft were you flying back in those uh, primary days? The first one was a 185 on floats. And then I um, you then did I, your primary in a float plane. Well, I didn't do the whole thing, but I did. I started my first probably ten hours, and then um, you know I had to really learn in more of like you know um, Cessnas and Pipers and things like that, whatever was available out in Dillingham. Yeah. Uh, any particular memories of that whole experience? Did, a lot. I mean, you know, did well, a lot because we were out in the bush, and um, I lived in a small town, three hundred miles southwest of Anchorage, and. Uh, so we didn't do things the same way that they do here, yeah. you know? I mean, we didn't Actually, have roads. That's case, yeah. But yeah, so like S-turns were down, you know, creeks and streams and, you know, turns around a point or around a moose and uh, trying to find where the wind was coming from. There were no wind socks, for example, in a lot of places. So, you know, you really had to learn, you know, how to read the wind on water and, you know, things like that and how to look at the tundra for certain signs of things and... Um, it's, you and, know, of course, that's smooth air, isn't it? Yeah, smooth air. And the weather changes really fast up yeah. there. I mean, in, you know, in the north, you have to learn weather patterns. And I'm, very, I'm really grateful that I had those early opportunities. And, of course, we had no GPS or Loran back then either. So. Yeah. Well, one thing we should probably talk about is women in aviation. Absolutely. And uh, um, what's going on here at the show in that, uh, in that venue? Yeah, Peggy. Or- I think it's good now. Go ahead. We just finished up our annual convention about a month ago uh, out in Nevada. Around 3,000 uh, individuals there this year, so a new record at, uh, attendance for us. But uh, Innovation brings together uh, ladies and men, it's women and men innovation, uh, in all different areas, general aviation, all areas of aviation, business aviation, general aviation, the airlines, and the military. And this year, we help pay tribute also to the centennial of Navy, uh, naval aviation. But one of the things we try to do, too, and Patty and I were just talking about this before the radio show, is trying to encourage youngsters, and particularly young ladies, to get involved in aviation, learning to fly or perhaps pursuing a career. And through our chapter network, we now have 75 chapters around the world uh, trying to do that. I know, Patty, you mentioned with the air shows, the experiences you've had with 
encouraging young girls. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Peggy and I were just talking about how important air shows are to aviation in general and bringing young, you know, now that, while we're talking about women in aviation, bringing young girls into into aviation, letting them know the opportunities. So encourage everybody to bring your daughters to aviation, I mean to air shows. Um, it's the only place you can get up close to, air, to airplanes and pilots on a regular basis. Is the key to attracting young women into aviation different than, than the way you might attract young men? It, or is it the same and they just got to get the word out? It's an interesting question. I haven't quite figured it out of you. I, I say it's, it's very similar. I think a lot of it's just exposing them to aviation. I think it's uh, still today, and, and I don't think, I, I never believe anyone's trying to keep girls out of aviation. It's just uh, many times a, a, a father or an uncle or grandfather will tend to take their, their son sometimes or a te- teacher or a guidance counselor or something will talk to the, the young men about aviation and careers but not think about it. It might be something that a girl would be interested in. I think that's one of the things where women in aviation have played a, a, a unique role is um, just by being there and, and going out into the schools and, and, or air shows or, or whatever your, your um, venue might be to just let them see, oh, yeah, Girls, <laughs> ladies are out there uh, doing this too. One of the things we've done is, uh, yeah. I think, a, a great success story. We started a scholarship program back in 1995 with two $500 scholarships. This year we awarded 68 scholarships that totaled $690-some-thousand. Wow. And to date we've awarded just about $7.5 million in scholarships. And they're all different scholarships. Yeah. Where can people find out more information about your organization and these programs? Our website, uh, wai.org, is a great place to find out about the scholarships, the conferences, the chapters, and, uh, and we're at Sun and Fun here in Hangar A. Great, great. Thank you, Peggy. Thank, Thank you, you, Patty Wagstaff, Thanks for stopping for by. Us. We really appreciate it. And uh, maybe now that we've broken the ice, you can join us on the podcast from time to time as well. That I'd would love really, to. That would be great. great. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. We're a little bit late for our break here, but uh, we wanted to visit with these new friends. Uh, We're going to be back in a few minutes. You're listening to a special episode of the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast on Sun and Fun Radio. Hey, kids, this is Dr. David Kolbaba for Sun and Fun Radio. Well, that was pretty cool. Uh, it's kind of a, a what do you call it, a double threat or a, a, a double header here. We had uh, John Burton uh, visit us in the hangar and a visit from uh, Patty Wagstaff, which was very, very cool. Uh, not to mention Pe- uh, Peggy Chambrian from Chebrian from the Women in Aviation Group. So uh, we thank them for stopping by and uh, sharing their experiences with us. And now joining us in the hangar is yet another notable uh, ce- I don't know, celebrity. Uh, no, you're not a celebrity. Was that notor- no- 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 notable? Yeah, no- notorious, right? You know, it's like, talk about running buddies. One of, one of Dave Higdon's old running buddies and a good friend of the podcast, Dan Johnson, is here. Hi, Dan. How you doing? Thanks. Great to be back with you fellows again. I'm sure. not sure I like that old part that he just threw in there. Well, he was referring to you, you know. Yeah, you got to get no, used to it by now, man. So let's talk a little bit about our experience this week. I can be heard. Let's see. Let's change this mic. I'm going to try microphone number six for a moment here right, and uh, see if this one's working a little bit better. So, uh, been an exciting week. Uh, have you seen anything? That, uh, Jeb, you've only been here for a few days. Dave and I have been yeah. here a little bit longer. Uh, what have we seen that we thought was interesting, that we liked? Uh, we talked a little bit on one of the dailies about the uh, this year's oddball aircraft of the year, which is the... Uh, uh, shooting star uh, airport aircraft with the latest uh, latest iteration on right. uh, on this designer's uh, 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 <laughs> so uh, that was kind of cool. Um, we're hearing a little bit of feedback here. They're racing around to fix it. I think maybe they've got it. There we go. So the shooting star was neat. De- Jeb, you haven't had a chance to actually see it in person yet. No, I saw a couple of images that, that I guess is you or, or, or yeah. Dave uh, had shot with a cell phone camera. Yeah. 
with the circular um, tail surface. Yeah. I think that is really cool. That's one of the more uh, interesting things I've seen. Yeah, uh, it, it was very yeah. cool, and yeah. it's interesting. One of the things that makes it interesting, um, I mean, aeronautically it's very interesting. Uh-huh. Engineering-wise it's very uh-huh. interesting. Just from a spectator standpoint, it's very interesting because when you watch a traditional aircraft fly, you have to look close to see the control surfaces move. But on this one, that whole that whole ring right. moves on a central pivot, and you, you see it wiggling around uh-huh. a lot back there. Uh-huh. I mean, it's doing all this kind of thing, and uh, um, it's, uh, it's very cool and uh, apparently very, very effective because I saw him flying it in some very pretty serious... I- I think it's not only effective, but very efficient. Yeah, yeah he said, he, I asked him what it felt like to fly, and he said it actually had very, very light control forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said you almost don't notice anything. And a lot of surface area back there, so yeah. if you get the geometry right, it shouldn't take a whole lot. That's right. Yeah, we put some pictures of that on the uh, UCAP blog, so if you're interested, you can go to uh, uncontrolledairspace.com slash blog and check that out. What else was interesting? Uh, we, we talked a little bit a minute ago about the Blue Angels. That was pretty cool to see them from that different perspective out mm-hmm. there. Um, so that was neat. Um, I, I've asked you guys, uh, Dan, what have you said? I mean, we'll talk about light sport and llama in a little bit, but, but in general, just as a pilot who's hanging out here for a week, have you seen anything in particular that caught your attention? Well, I have to say that, uh, of course, the aircraft are always the focus of these kind of events, and they should be, I guess. But there's also facilities, and I know John Burton already talked briefly about the changes in the ultralight area, or the, what we, it's like the, the artist formerly known as Prince. We uh, now have to see the area formerly known as the ultralight area, because that's still how a lot of people refer to it, but it's a light plane area, or more colloquially, uh, Paradise City. Yeah. And I am blown away at the amount and quality of changes there. It's clearly a deliberate move. First of all, most people don't even know, I didn't know, maybe others do, that that runway over there is an official DOT-approved runway mm-hmm. for the show and for a couple of days on either side of the show. That fact has triggered the airport to allocate funds and to go ahead and start improvements there, okay. which have been a long time coming because there are various... Uh, uh, agencies in the state of Florida that have sort of made those kind of changes difficult, and apparently now they've been able to forge ahead. They have already uh, corrected, if you will, the uh, big ditch on the west end of the runway, because mm-hmm. at each end of a, it's a perfectly substantial runway, 1,350 feet usable for the light airplanes that I deal with. That's plenty of runway, but uh, the approaches to and uh, the ditches at either end were a little ominous. Uh, if you did have a problem, you may have had a big problem. But they fixed the one on the west end, and the even larger ditch on the west end is due to be fixed before next year. Uh, they already have large clear zones, and then there's a whole line of trees that runs down the south side of the runway. And as it, as it, ha- as it happens, the wind seems to frequently come from the south, so you're landing in a constant uh, sort of rotored air mass, Mm -hmm. and all those trees, I'm told, are going to go away. Now, these things are still in the future, so we'll see what actually happens, but if they do all that stuff, they have transformed that runway to be another demo-capable runway on the field here, and that's significant, certainly for us light-end guys, but uh, I think it's a significant significant development yeah, for anything for Sunday fun. That was, that was, I mean, certainly they were trying to improve it for the ultralight folks, but another reason for those improvements, as I understand it, was to make it more suitable for the LSA uh, aircraft to go in and out of there. What are you hearing from the LSA folks now? Are they do they find that appealing? Do they th- you think some of them will move down there and, and operate in out of there next year? Well, it's a premature to answer that because we don't really know the answer to that, Jack. We, I, as I said, even I just found out about it, and I kind of keep my ear to the ground pretty close on developments that affect the section of aviation that I 
focus on all the time. I wasn't even aware of some of those changes, so I think a lot of them aren't either. So we are now starting to have some real serious discussions about whether or not it's time to uh, uh, relocate the LSA Mall. Those are just in consideration now. It's sure to say anything at this point, but uh, we're certainly looking at it because that level of improvement, that level of dedication to it has been quite remarkable. But i got to mention another thing I didn't know happened down there either, and that is there's a couple of new grass areas that look like, oh, they, what, they, I guess they resodded them, or maybe there was a lot of uh, low ground there or something. Well, that wasn't it at all. In fact, there are some RC events, RC radio control events that happen there, RC jets, and that new grass is their runway. Is that what that is? Okay. That's the grass that's sort of uh, parallel to the uh, Paradise City runway. Right, right. Yeah, you, okay. you pull down all the fences that are out there right, now, okay. and you can imagine how that might be used. Those big concrete pads, I thought, well, that's nice. They made some parking places for heavier airplanes or something. Those are for the RC jets. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. And, and, and they do a nice job doubling as a swap spot point when you're doing demos. Yes, right, exactly. So, I mean, uh, the, and, and the way I got to also give credit to Dave Piper and his, I think he told me 135 volunteers that worked that area. I didn't know the numbers were like that. I guess we're all surprised by the hard work of these volunteers that is unsung hero type stuff, but uh, gosh, for all of them here, as you fellows have uh, noted for the whole group, it's been re- remarkable how much they responded to uh, Tornado Thursday, but just in general work, it's been pretty impressive. And uh, you just have to give a lot of credit to those guys for laboring without. Uh, nobody's giving them a lot of pats on the back, and maybe this is one of them, and they deserve it. Yeah. Well, uh, moving, you know, the, the, the light sport mall, uh, it's been in a really nice location for the folks coming into the show who may not have ever seen that. But having a space like that that's disconnected from someplace where you can demo, uh, I don't think gives them the chance to market their airplanes to the actual flyers that uh, they would benefit from over on the Paradise City side. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of keeping my fingers crossed that that's where it, where it goes and how it happens. Well, it needed to be right. You know, you can't drag people to the place where they don't want to be. And indeed, for a little while there, um, I say it hesitantly because I, my heart's really in the Paradise City. I spent many, many years there decades i guess and uh but it had to be right before you can ask those folks to move but uh the lsa mall is now in its fifth year here at sun and fun and the sun and fun folks have been extremely uh uh, supportive of our efforts to show this new sector of aviation uh the whole reason for the mall in the first place is because lsa is the newest kids on the block if you will and so any manufacturer had to pick whatever space on the grounds here they could and therefore they're scattered all over the ground so it makes it hard for the attendee to go compare and look, and that's why the LSA Mall uh, was given birth, take off of the auto mall concept where auto dealerships are right next to one another, and why do they do that? It's good for the customer. So we're just trying to be customer conscious there, and I think now the whole LSA segment, which really is only six years old, it's still in its infancy, but it's come along far enough now, the brands are well enough known, and people are aware of them enough that uh, maybe we don't need to be in the current location we're at and could go to one that's more beneficial to actual buyers and demo applying. Then the light sport aircraft's only half of the equation in this new segment. The other is the sport pilot certificate. Uh, how's that progressed? What kind of numbers? Do you have any numbers on uh, people who have earned a, a sport pilot's uh, privilege? Priv- a little easy for me to say. <laughs> sport pilot privileges. Well, it has come along. I don't have the exact numbers today, but the numbers have been growing there. But the reality of it is that most of the light sport uh, buyers have been existing pilots. We know about that with the medical advantage that 
It was the same way with the ultralights 30 years ago. Uh, Exactly. Well, you know, it's an interesting part of aviation uh, because it's got uh, innovation. And that has been, if you ask me, that is the greatest success so far of LSA. I mean, there's been a lot of good work by a lot of people. But the incredible flowering of design and the diversity diversity in those designs, 115 new models, six years. There's really nothing to compare with that in aviation worldwide. But that all came about because government released its grip and allowed things to happen under industry's direction. And uh, the Light Aircraft Manufacturers Association, of which I'm president, has been trying to step up to the plate and take the responsibility that's implied when that kind of freedom is given. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fits and starts. I mean, we move as we can. And, uh, uh, but I'm really pleased with the amount of development by the industry uh, and by those embracing that industry and how far forward we've moved in just a very short time. Yeah. Tell us about some of the individual stories in the LSA world this year. What's, uh, what's notable? Is there anything new these days? Well, there, uh, we actually, that whole uh, 115 model thing has slowed down a bit because the last two years, as we all know, in every segment of uh, culture has slowed down a great deal with uh, two years of a pretty tough economy. But uh, the one thing we have to keep in mind is that this whole LSA thing is not just a USA thing. This is a global development. Uh, China has now embraced ASTM standards, and many other countries, too. The list is somewhere around uh, 12 countries that have accepted ASTM standards in one form or another, and an additional 30 that are looking at it. And what that really means for a manufacturer of whatever aircraft is that they can make an aircraft, and they are already approved in all those other countries and more to come. Uh, If you do that with Part 23 today, you have to go country by country and gain approval. Millions of dollars, and, and that's really hard on a company, even if you've got a lot of funding, because you're spending an awful lot of money just getting approvals, not developing neat stuff. So we've been set free from some of those barriers, and it's been a great thing and caused this flowering. The, the non-U.S. market has actually revived quicker than the U.S. market, uh, and so that's supporting a lot of those manufacturers and more to come. Primarily, where is the non-U.S. market? Well, Europe is still the largest single segment of it, but uh, also Australia is now growing their aviation sector. It's a, a much smaller country population-wise, but uh, nonetheless, uh, Lightsport has had a huge impact there, and some of our American manufacturers are exporting to uh, Europe as well, uh, excuse me, to Australia as well as some of the European companies. South Africa is another one that's embraced it, and they're starting to grow with that. But the two biggies uh, sitting out there are China and India, and both of them are now bringing in light sport. We've been oh, hearing wow. about China opening their airspace yeah. up to 1,000 meters, 3,000 feet. Uh, that's brand new. Until just two years ago, there was nothing but military or air- airline traffic in China. And India is also coming along, so hard to know where it's going to go in those countries. It would be crystal ball gazing, but fascinating that they're jumping on this it thing. Is. It is. Now, all this flowering and the blooming of a new segment is really good, but it hasn't been without a few uh, aphids in, in, in the flowers there. And one of them, it seems to be a hang-up. Uh, you know, the promise was, the, ad- the idea was, you get your sport pilot ticket, as a, and if you wanted to step up to the private that there'd be the benefit of that training, but we found through uh, an interpretation, I, uh, I, I call it, of the uh, sport pilot rules, that unless you earn your sport pilot ticket from a regular certificated flight instructor, if you learn it from a sport pilot instructor, they don't want to count those hours. The FAA doesn't want to let you count those hours. I look at the syllabus, the practical test standards, and say, but it's the same stuff. 
So there's been a formal petition to correct that. Uh, any idea where that's going and what the likelihood is of them actually rising up and growing up on that? Well, I'd be stunned if that development didn't go right through because you have virtually every alphabet organization, AOPA, EAA, Gamma, Lama, even the National Aircraft Controllers Association, I mean, groups that I didn't, wasn't sure even knew LSA existed, have said, hey, that's dumb. If, if, if you learn how to fly from somebody and that teaching has been able to allow you to pass a test, you learn the stuff. It's not a question of who taught you. That would be like saying that homeschooling wasn't as good a quality as uh, conventional schooling. And if, they, if, the, if the children in that case can pass the test... I think they learned the stuff, and the same is true here. Is there a time frame associated with the FAA making uh, a change in this interpretation um, that you're aware of? I am not aware. Uh, FAA moves at a rather glacial pace much of the time, and uh, I'm, I'm sure this isn't going to happen overnight. They, but they march to the tune of a different drummer, shall we say. Yeah, and I think the different drummer has put his sticks down sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> David, I know you've been taking a particular interest to LSAs lately. What models have you seen that, you, that have caught your eye? Help me with this. There's a tandem. The MC1, is it? Is that it? MS1. MS1, MS1, MS1 yeah. Okay. The MS1, it just intrigues me to death. Uh, because I may be wrong here, but I don't think I've seen anything like it in a tandem aircraft that wasn't a tube and rag cub clone, cub cousin kind of airplane. And this is a, a low-wing tandem bubble cockpit uh, as LSA goes high performance looking machine well you're exactly right that's the big difference there is there are seven tandems in the 115 aircraft uh, not including trikes and powered parachutes which are also tandem so there's more than that but in the fixed wing sector there's seven of them this one is the high performance version of all of that and it's kind of close to me literally because I can walk to their facility in five minutes from my house at Spruce Creek flying uh, now, what, what engine does that have in it? Uh, they're using the Jabiru 3300, 120 horsepower. That's the six-cylinder? That's the six-cylinder, okay. and I did get to fly that airplane, and uh, and it, it's it's a little different than almost all the other LSA and its flight characteristics. They've aimed at a slightly different market, and mm-hmm. I think they're they're going to do some good. But Cross-country market? or uh, Well, uh, yes, that too, of course, but I think for the guys that want to do aerobatics okay. and you know some of the more uh, high-performance type flying, uh, that one's a very good candidate for it. It, it does fly a little bit differently and, and requires a little adjustment to get used to it, as, as does almost every other. I can see a guy buying that or a woman buying that and having the uh, the name inscribed under the cockpit, Captain Mitty. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, no, so how do you do, what does it mean to be a high-performance aircraft in a category that's capped in terms of performance? Well, well the, the top speed is the cap, but not in its perform, not in its uh, handling and, and other performance characteristics. So, so you know, so things like climb and so forth. Either of you, or, so is that the case on that one? Is it? Is it? What are the are the specs that are high performance relative to other LSAs for that aircraft? David or, or Dan? Well, you know, I mean, climb rate is definitely one of them, but also handling characteristics and how that folds into its performance envelope. Uh, some aircraft, uh, let's say the, the Cub range, of course, is our slower handling, mm-hmm. more sort of relaxed flying, if you will, and the MS-1 is a, is a performance aircraft. So its handling is snappier, uh, its approaches to landing are done differently. Um, and uh, it you know because it's tandem, it allows you to have a real narrow, lean aircraft. So it can run right at the top of the category. But you're right, uh, Jack, that it's you know we, we've got a maximum top speed, right. and you can't mm-hmm. exceed that. I don't know enough about the ASTM standards to answer this on my own. So when I ask you, 
is there an acrobatic uh, um, certification or acrobatic standard, and, and does that aircraft approach or meet that? Uh, that's a great question, Devin. No, there is not one okay. yet. In fact, the one that has everyone tied up in kind of knots right now that it may be of interest to the listeners is is the IFR section right. of the whole LSA right. thing. First of all, LSA can be used for instrument flight. There is no restriction against it. You just can't use a sport pilot certificate to do right. so, but many of the people operating these things have instrument tickets and want that kind of stuff. That's why a lot of LSA today have autopilots and that kind of sophisticated equipment in it that no one anticipated five years ago. Uh, but the IMC part of it is currently, uh, well, it's not quite in restriction yet, but it's going to be. Uh, flight into uh, known conditions and so forth, uh, we have decided as a group or is not appropriate until we have a proper standard that says here's how you adhere to it. Of course, that's driven by the legal liability monster that no manufacturer really wants to be out there selling an IMC-capable airplane without having a standard to which they have uh, uh, met, the, met the requirements. Yeah. Dan, uh, you can stick around for a few minutes, I believe, right? Because we're, we're going to come back after this break, and uh, we're going to check the veracity of some of Dave's stories about the old days here. So, uh, <laughs> Ooh, there's a slippery slope. Yeah. Sure, we don't have enough time for that at all. Yeah. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. This is the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast on Sun and Fun Radio. This is Jeff Ward from Behind the Scenes at the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast. You're listening to Sun and Fun Radio, WPEP 788, 1510 AM, Lakeland, Florida, and on the web at liveatc.net slash SNF. So one of the things that I like to talk about uh, when we get together like this, I'm, I'm always curious about what we've all bought while we're here. And uh, so I'm kind of curious that, uh, to, to hear. Let me start with Dan. I know, so Dan, just kind of speaking again in your role as a pilot who comes to Sun and Fun, did you buy anything this year? I haven't had a chance to go even look at buying anything this year, but uh, I typically don't, you know, and I, uh, just because of my schedule and whatnot, and like a lot of folks that have to work the show, but I've always thought that if you come to a show like this and you're looking to buy an airplane, well, how do you decide? Unless your wallet's a mighty bit thicker than mine and you can buy, say, your best three, I don't know how you narrow down to just one. There's too much attractive stuff on the field. Yeah. But you were talking about the auto mall concept, uh, the LSA mall, and if you... You know, look at the big picture. A sun and fun is one big airplane shopping mall, new and used. You could maybe find two airplanes parked side by side in the campground that you might be interested in. Now, they may not be for sale, but you can kind of eyeball them there, maybe talk to the owners, uh, plus all the stuff that's available from the commercial guys. Uh, But then how do you decide? Uh, You don't until you fly the puppy. Well, I, I guess you, you know, and that's there, there you go back to that whole demo thing that we talked about. I mean, you really got to go fly an airplane before you, you know how it feels. Pretty much like you do with a lot of products, but how do you do that with air, aircraft? It's a little more difficult. Uh, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, one of the uh, local radio news uh, broadcasters, a gal, came out and did a story on Sunday. Now, this was before Tornado Thursday and all that. But And uh, she did a really nice job with her report. But the only t- there's all these airplanes out here, the only two she looked at, were the two LSA class flying cars, the Terrafugia and the really? Maverick? Here we got, I don't know how many airplanes on the field, and a lot of them were remarkable in, in various ways. That was the two that she got. That catches the mainstream a lot more. I mean, everybody drives a car, or almost everybody drives a car, so they can identify with half of what that machine can do right away. Right. And then, oh, gee, it'll also fly. Well, now I'm interested. I, I thought that was fascinating that. All this stuff out here. And even though her story was professionally done, that's all she really kind of saw. Yeah, yeah. David, have you bought anything? Are you going to buy anything before you walk away? Uh, 
a couple of little things I want to look at and pick up, and then I got to do the mandatory T-shirt supply run for some friends back in uh, uh, Wichita who were unable That's to right. make it here. So. That's right. My friend went to Sun and Fun, and all I got was the T-shirt. So, uh, uh, what what sort of things are you looking at to, other than T-shirts to possibly buy? Well, I'm hoping that there's still some I survived uh, shirts around. Uh, yeah. Those go into my personal collection. That was a cool shirt. That shows yeah. the tornado right. and shows the airplanes and porta potties circling around the tornado and, and uh, cows and cows. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, uh, but, so, but but no witch and no Dorothy and no Toto. Yeah, that's right. But yeah. Uh, yeah. so that was kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't even go there. Don't even go there. Don't even go there. Shelbetter's talking about his. I, I will cut you. Yeah. <laughs> All right, maybe we can really, maybe Jeb bought something. Have you bought something? I have. I I, I think I mentioned um, earlier in the week uh, something about a landing light that I was trying to get for the yeah, airplane. Yeah, how'd that go? It, it went fine. I got the landing light. It's uh, uh, ready to be installed. I'll probably try to do that, uh, you know, this coming week. Yeah. I uh, put it in the airplane, make sure everything's copacetic. And that's just, uh, it's an LED, uh, it's a Wayland manufactured uh, LED landing light. Um, and uh, being solid state and whatnot, it uh, should last a lot longer in, in the nose bowl of my airplane. Part of the theory, yeah, right, that's yeah. the theory. And uh, it, it uses less uh, power in the airplane. Now, and, maybe this uh, is a crazy question, but is something uh, that uh, a fundamentally different kind of light like that? Is that it's okay to put that in? It's not, not well, an STC this, this, thing. In this or? particular aircraft, in my aircraft, it's STC. It is really. This is this is a landing light. It's a landing light bulb. It fits in the same spot as the existing bulb, um, and but it, it, in my airplane, it requires an STC. Now I can go down to um, the National Auto, uh, excuse me, National Aviation Parts Association <laughs> store, <laughs> yeah. and buy a uh, an identical light bulb. It says 4509 GE 4509 light bulb uh, for 9.99, and I can put that in the airplane myself as as uh, as the owner of the airplane. Um, and uh, be perfectly legal, okay? But because this is different technology for some reason, I've got to have an STC to put this light bulb in my airplane. Well, see, I'm not actually all that surprised by that because it is different technology, and that's what made me wonder if it was a special case. I understand where you're going. You know, so, okay. And, it's and, actually many light bulbs in one. That's right. That's many, right. many light bulbs. M- many light sources in one bulb. In one bulb package, yeah. uh, but um, um, you're going to ask me anything else. Um, I need a battery for the airplane. Um, I, I haven't decided whether to try to get that here and get it shipped or or what to do about that. Uh, a couple of oil filters wouldn't hurt me. Uh, you know, just little odds and ends like that. I was wondering uh, oil filters. Yes, you, you, oil sometimes filters. you buy cases of oil. I, I, I do sometimes. And uh, if you were here on Thursday, by the way, they were they, they were cases floating floating all over. They the were place. scattered all over for the picking up. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I'm I'm good on oil. Uh, I need a couple of filters, and uh, if I see anything else uh, that strikes my fancy, I might try to pick that up too. But that's pretty much it. I bought myself a pair of uh, fancy aviation clip-on sunglasses, which I then two days later smashed. Uh-huh. And so now I'm well, I, I did buy a pair of sunglasses. They're in another car somewhere now. I've already lost them. So. Yeah, see, there you go. Um, and Dave got his, uh, his Elvis sunglasses. He doesn't like it when I say that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, I will tune in on one thing that uh, that I had uh, got drawn to. I'm a new iPad user. Oh, okay. Oh, that's and the other my thing, goodness, yeah. there is iPad stuff uh-huh. like spilling out of every hangar here. There's I sure swear, are. many sure. cool things. I mean, so much that uh-huh. it takes a while to go around and check it all uh-huh. out. And 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 uh, Jack and I've been kind of having an offline conversation about some of that. But 
Um, yeah, I've, I've, as listeners know, I've got an iPad now also, and I'm, you know, I've kind of uh, been assimilated into that uh, that culture. But um, um, the Apple Borg, the Apple another Borg, victim yes. of the Borg. Yes, yes. Uh, and I'm, you know, curious about what else is out there. I've got Forflight on mine, and I use it uh, quite well, frequently. In but case folks aren't familiar, uh, outfit called uh, what is it? EJM, Executive Jet Management, right. uh-huh. and work with Jeppesen. Uh, who supplies an electronic flight bag uh, uh, package for that iPad, subjected it, the original and the second generation, to a rapid decompression test. That was the iPad 2. Was the iPad 2. What does that was the, you, I don't know if you said iPad 1 or 2, but it's the iPad 2 that they did that test. They in. did it to both. Oh, okay. Well, I know they did it to both, yeah. but the recent, most recently it was the iPad 2. Yeah, the most recent one. But yeah, it, if you got the first generation, when you don't have to go by the second generation to have the approval. Right. Uh, I mean, you, you don't need the FAA is okay to run that uh, as a Class 1 EFB anyway. I but, don't need the FAA is okay to do that anyway. But <laughs> for executive jet management, they uh, it's a different category, different situation uh you know some of those aircraft will cruise at 510 well will it hold up in the you know in the event of a rapid decompression so they put it in a pressure chamber ratcheted it up then dumped the air pressure and observed no glass breakage no battery damage it continued to function normally uh making no statements about how much longer it might continue to function that way after being subjected to that kind of event but that's fairly impressive uh, it, it, it builds confidence in the idea that you can use that and and, and not worry too much about the atmospheric pressure i, I wonder if apple ever conceived that their product would be used in this fashion. I was just wondering if there's employment opportunity for aviators at Apple these days. There probably ought to be. I think that, I don't know whether they thought about aviators, but I think they thought uh, correctly that it would be embraced by a lot of vertical categories. Uh, aviation is not the only one. It's being being embraced by the medical community. It's being embraced by all sorts of, uh, you know, Play, uh, uh, you know, businesses and workers that need mobile we, access. We to have data. to believe that they did because here at Sun and Fun 2010, there were already companies offering applications yeah. to run on the iPad, and it had only been out a week. So, you know, when they share it with software developers ahead of time and the software developers working in the aviation market, somebody out there in California had to have an idea that this puppy yeah. was going to be a big hit with pilots. Yeah. One of the iPad-related products that I thought was kind of interesting, um, and Jeb, you've talked about wanting to be able to get XM Weather on the iPad. Yeah. Um, there's an outfit that's a, 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 it, they're actually in the XM Weather booth, and they're showing a gadget, a box, that you can attach to your XM Weather receiver that then retransmits the XM data um, as Wi-Fi uh-huh. so that your iPad can receive it. Wi-Fi or Bluetooth? Wi-Fi, I believe. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and then they're working with various third-party developers who are creating software that can take advantage of that yeah. feed. Yeah. And uh, a, a bunch of notable ones, not, to, not the least of which is ForeFlight, right. uh, are, are going to take advantage of that weather data. Yeah, it's, so. it's coming. Um, it's, it's, that, that, to me, sounds a bit kludgy. But uh, there might be some more seamless and, and elegant solutions to that in the uh, in the very near future. Yeah. 
Well, we do have one of the LSA companies that embrace that uh, enthusiastically. It's the uh, Sport Air USA's iCub, which uh, looks a little bit like a cub, but is not actually a cub. And uh, they put an Apple iPad as their main instrument up front. The guy sitting in the back, it's a tandem aircraft, has an iPhone 4 as a backup instrument. And the whole thing gets engine data through an onboard wireless system. Wow. <laughs> wow. So who knew that was coming just yeah. a year ago? Only, yeah. And here's somebody else that embraced it quickly. And, you know, plus when you get to your destination or wherever you're doing, uh, you can go and do your flight planning. Mm-hmm. Just pull the instrument out and uh, catch a movie, catch your, do your email. and Pretty pretty handy package and, and and at I, a low price. And I presume all that's, of course, powered by ship's power. And, and if and when ship's power fails, you still have the internal battery to keep things uh, uh, running and, and at least keep monitoring things. That's very well, cool. There were a couple that I met in the uh, home-built area yesterday. Uh, I want to get this right. Detlef and Liliana from Germany and Spain, respectively, flying an RV-7 around the world. And... Had a great panel of electronic gear, uh, redundant primary flight displays, redundant moving map displays, uh, Garmin 430 feeding with safe taxi and charts and all that. But underneath the panel on the co-pilot side was a little tray. You unlatch it, slide it out, and there's a notebook computer. Plug the USB jack into it that was accompanying it. Now you've got GPS running on the laptop completely independent of the electrical system for as long as a battery in the uh, notebook lasts, which I think, if I remember right, Detlef said it would last them a couple of hours and get them navigation data, uh, still satellite uh, communications data through the through the uplink. Uh, amazing redundancy. Yep. And that kind of use of the iPad falls right into it the does. same same it category. Does. I looked at another product over in the Hangar E uh, down toward the camping area called the Magic Box. It was kind of an interesting little... I, I saw that and, and uh, didn't really get a chance to spend any time with that booth. But yeah, you know, we what, talked what, to what, the what guy, does that do? Well, it does a, very, uh, a variety of things. They started out with a, an altitude alert system. That's where it began. You, get, you set it, and if you go up above or down below a certain altitude, it gives you an audible sound. Uh, then they did a thing with uh, fuel sources so that you can keep track of all that audio-wise. Mm-hmm. And Dave and I, being soaring pilots... Uh, know about variometers, and you're looking for that as a lift-indicating device. And, uh, you know, I have one. Most most soaring pilots have one. I don't ever look at it. I just listen to it. You can tell by sounds what's going on. Interesting. So they had this gizmo, and then uh, people started asking them about other things. Pilots today, not like my memory of, uh, I don't know, a couple of decades ago, often use in-flight entertainment. And, you know, we've got all kinds of gizmos that do that now. And so they've, got, they've added that into that system. So you can listen to music. Of course, it cuts out anytime there's anything important to listen to relative to the airplane. But uh, they said, according to them, an awful lot of people are using MP3 players of one kind or another. Uh, to listen to music, sure. listen to books, whatever, while they're flying. You know, there's some long stretches across the country, and uh, oh, why not? So oh, I thought yeah. that was kind of an interesting develop, too. A f- friend of mine, his prior airplane, he could plug in a portable DVD player, in, and it would run on his KMD850 multifunction display. Right. <laughs> so um, we, we seem to have a knack for finding good sushi places in, pla- in areas where you wouldn't expect to find good sushi. So we have our... <laughs> We have our traditional sushi place in uh, Appleton, Wisconsin, when we're, when we're visiting that other air show up the road. And last night, uh, uh, we very serendipitously wandered into another fun one, which, what was it called? Shig- I- Shing- 
Shingetsu. Shingetsu, yeah. right? Uh, you're familiar. And so we were, we were gathered around the table last night uh, eating sushi and drinking soft drinks. Um, and <laughs> Yellow soft drinks, probably. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, uh, and, and Dave was regaling us with stories of his checkered past. Um, one, one, thing that he, one tale he was telling us about that I, I, we kind of challenged him on a little bit he many times in the past has referred to various hang gliding uh, operations that you guys have played around in where there was a ramp on the edge of a drop and you'd use the ramp for launching off of and I, that is fine, I can picture that but he last night was trying to sell us the idea that this ramp actually was curved like an airfoil can you confirm or, or deny this story? I can definitely confirm it. In fact, it's a very interesting little piece of architecture. The uh, This is up in Tennessee, uh, near Chattanooga, a little outside of the city limits there, but uh, a group called the Tennessee Treetoppers, and Dave maybe can identify why it has that name. I think he maybe joined the club officially, but uh, as many of us did back in those early days. <laughs> I get it. I, I, think I get, get it. it. Yeah. Uh, but, yes, they've got they, quite an interesting thing. I mean, they did a whole a pseudo wind tunnel that is on the top of a car, created a, uh, a system where they could measure the flow of air around this thing because the front of the face of the cliff has some ins and outs to it and that can turbulate the air and here you are right at the moment of launch uh, you don't want that so they created this rather enormous thing that fans out and smooths down that and the air flows over it and comes up and uh, makes a very launchable uh, position so that kind of a yeah, I, remarkable thing the people that designed this I'm trying to remember the name of the guy that did the actual modeling work and mounted it up out in the front of his truck and with tufts and all that and then scaled it up built huge plywood what they would be that we would call them ribs in a real wing Mm -hmm. uh we went in one weekend camped tore down the old ramp came back the next weekend with the parts put up the ribs the wings and then sheathed it in two by fours and we were flying on off of it by uh, mid-afternoon the second day. Uh, the individual's name was Dennis Van Dam. That's it. And he had a uh, one of those Volkswagen campers at that time, uh, those little uh, vehicles yep, that the DW sold. So the whole story is he put that thing up there, and after a while it acquired a name itself. It was... Dennis Van Dam's damn van. You <laughs> <laughs> just kind of love that for the pure sound of it. All right. Well, and since that ramp went up at the Henson's Gap launch site over to Sequatchie Valley, uh, the uh, Lookout Mountain Flight Park ramp, uh, quite a ways away, uh, I guess that's the Lookout Valley on that side of the mountain. Right, right. The other one's on the Sequatchie Valley. Right. Which, uh, by the way, is a the beginning of a valley that runs all the way up to uh, Pennsylvania. This is where some of the longest sailplane flights in the world have ever been achieved. But the uh, we were in uh, we were in uh, Chattanooga uh, back in uh, November. Visited the Lookout Mountain launch, and they have recreated that radial ramp design on their own. There, uh, it just. It, it it gets rid of a rotor that would come behind and want to push the glider tail first and nose down when it was at the just the right velocity. Uh, so you guys challenged me on the laminar flow thing. Uh, the whole idea there was to eliminate that rotor by giving the air some place to come up the face and smooth out as it came over mm-hmm. instead of just hitting a 90-degree edge. Uh, and with the exception of, you know, a couple of unfortunate souls who... Uh, in a rather inebriated 
state, uh, one of them actually stepped backward to challenge what we were going to do, telling him not to walk out on the ramp at night, and then disappeared from view. <laughs> That's why they put a red board in there at one point. Don't cross this line yeah. without a wing clipped onto your back. And 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 the big, I, I, I got a kick out of the big cast metal plates that are set in the ground there now that say "hook in." <laughs> um, so now you going, know it's going. true. It's a real fact. So, a, uh, it, it, and it, I got to mention while we're doing hang gliding, just briefly, I know that uh, is a, is another niche in the many niches of aviation. But right up the road here, we have a place called Wallaby Ranch, uh, which is just south of Disney, and they do some very cool stuff. And, with and this gentleman sitting down here flies in another site uh, from another hang gliding operation. Uh, Quest. Quest, yeah, just up the road from Wallaby Ranch in uh, Claremont, Florida. Uh, Wallaby's in Haines City, Florida, and Claremont, uh, Quest is just up at Claremont. And uh, they both do kind of the same activities. They use a special uh, ultralight that was custom-designed just to tow hang gliders. And, and uh, the Wallaby Ranch folks had a big event right before Sun and Fun started, timed exactly for that reason. Had a huge bunch of people out there, and uh, just an exciting place. Any aviator, would, whether you have any interest in hang gliding or not, you'd enjoy going to either one of these places and just watching the action on a And they must do some sort day. of tow launches or something like that, right? They tow them up behind a, an ultralight that's specifically Cause, made for it. Because yeah, the original ones were, they called them dragonflies, if I remember And that's right. still the one, you know? Yeah. Because if you tried to claim there was any ridge soaring in Florida, you'd get Jeb started with the ridge thing in Florida. There's no ridges in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Jeb has a big problem with the fact that there's a street in his town and, called and something. And one of the great ridge. things about soaring is you get such excellent gas mileage. Yeah, well, actually, there is a Florida ridge, though. Yeah. And it's because you get uh, sea breeze converging from both sides of this big peninsula called Florida. The air gets to the middle of the state, runs into each other, and goes up. And they have flown the entire length of Florida and well into um, uh, Georgia on hang gliders, much less sailplanes, using that ridge you cannot see. That's very, very that, that really is genuinely interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, this sort of sort of a, a virtual ridge. A, uh, yeah, okay. On, on the right day, it's quite phenomenal. There's no other evidence of why air should be going up there, and that's the explanation. Does it generate any visible component? Is there a line of clouds or anything? Yep, that forms yep. Up? It'll create a line of clouds. They're called the thunderstorms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, until they become thunderstorms, they're called cloud streets. That, that's the term I've heard. Yeah, cloud that's streets. Right. That's the term I've heard. And you can follow cloud streets for as long as you can connect the dots. Yeah. We are starting... Connecting the dots is just as easy as getting out there and sticking your nose plate into it. Yeah. We are starting to reach the end of our allotted time here. Uh, what's left for us to do today? Uh, what are we going to do uh, for the rest of the afternoon? I'm going to do a little bit more shopping. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't seen a whole lot of the flight line or, or even the parking area, so I'm going to... Try to get my shopping knocked out here fairly quickly and then uh, go for a stroll. Yeah. We were talking about even sticking around long enough to see the Blue Angels one more time. Maybe, yeah. maybe yeah. find another unusual uh, location. I don't know. You know, this weather's looking kind of iffy. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Folks at home, he's get, exaggerating. The weather. I want to get home. I don't know. <laughs> There's not a cloud in the sky that yeah, I can it's, see. It's pretty spectacular. David, what do you what do you got planned for the rest uh, of the day? I need to touch base with a couple of folks for a couple of projects I'm trying to finish researching here. Uh, going to do a little shopping, uh, you know, maybe have a bite of food. Oh, yeah, lunch. Already lunch. packed up. Uh, the, the wheels are ready to point it back down to, uh, to Shea Burnside when we're done here. And after bidding fond farewell to uh, our, our host for the week, uh, Dave Shawbetter, Shea Shawbetter, which weathered, weathered the storm perfectly. So, yeah. 
yeah, likewise, I've got a few things, a few more shopping things I want to do, uh, collect a little bit more information for another project I'm working on, and uh, now I'm just going to wander around the grounds a little bit more and kind of use the force, you know, kind of let let it let the experience flow over me, right, and see what we can see. Exactly. Uh, lots and lots of beautiful airplanes here this week. Um, I got a lot of people I want to thank here, but uh, any particular shout-outs we want to do? Well, we usually do shout-outs in the regular episodes. Just, just but, uh, generically, the the and I'm, you mightn't be going into more detail here, but uh, just the Dave Schaubetter and the entire Sun and Fun radio staff, uh, not only for the hospitality, but for the professionalism and and making all this work, and and especially on Thursday, uh, um, you know, com- coming up with. Uh, uh, pulling, pulling some rabbits out of the hat, as it were. And uh, congratulations and, and many, 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 many thanks. Yeah. You're here. Yeah, as a matter of fact, let me just jump into my list here of a bunch of people to thank. Uh, we want to thank uh, Peg, Peggy Chabrian from uh, Women in Aviation uh, and for stopping by and bringing uh, Patty Wagstaff by to chat with us for a little bit. That was a lot of fun and a very special treat. Uh, we want to uh, thank Dan Johnson. Uh, of the light, you, so the uh, you are the president or the chairman. See, I always get this wrong. Oh, I got all the titles, you know, uh, president and chairman of the board. Of the light, and aircraft, he sweeps the floors. Of the light, and air, that too, yeah. Light Aircraft Manufacturers Association. Where can people find more information about that organization on the web? Uh, very simple. Uh, LAMA dot BZ. No I, just BZ. LAMA dot BZ. Excellent. And then there's. Uh, by DanJohnson.com for uh, very detailed light uh, light sport aircraft information. Thank you. Big thanks to uh, John Burton, the president and chairman of the Sun and Fun Fly-In, for stopping by and uh, sharing his perspective on the whole thing with us. Learn more about uh, the Sun and Fun Fly-In at sun-n-fun.org, uh, and you get a lot of information about this fly-in. And good, good time to start planning for 2012. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, let's see now, and, and as Dave, uh, Jeb said, uh, a big, big thanks to uh, Dave Schulbetter and to the entire staff and crew here at Sun and Fun Radio. Uh, thanks to Art, who's been on the board for us here, uh, and uh, helping sound good and uh, thanks to all the board operators who have helped us throughout the week Um, uh, uh, just a great thank you to to everybody for having us and helping us out and giving us this opportunity let's see now uh, you're Dave Higdon and you're Jeb Burnside and I'm Jack Hodgson David is something you wanted to say there's a good way to extend your life fly to an air show because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan bye bye and that's enough flying that's enough flying (laughs) (laughs) We've been a long week, halfway. Yeah, Ryan, let's yeah. go talking. It's a bit, it's, I usually have it written down right in front of me. See, that's the thing. That, that's enough talking. Let's go flying. TTFN. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.